0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Content People, a podcast where we talk to smart people about creative work, creative leadership, and their career journeys. This podcast is produced by Brafton. Brafton's a content marketing organization powered by a global team of creative professionals and marketing experts. My name is Meredith Farley. I'm the COO at Brafton. I oversee our creative production and service teams. And I'm here with Ian Serban. Hi, Ian. Hey, Ian's our creative director video who is producing this podcast. Ian, thank you for doing that.
1: Absolutely. We have a really great episode today. I'm really excited for it.
0: I know, me too. All right. So today we talk to Lisa Marciano. Lisa is a Jungian analyst, author, and podcaster whose writings have appeared in numerous publications. She's the co-host and creator of the popular depth psychology podcast, This Jungian Life. She's on the faculty of the C.G. Jung Institute of philadelphia and she lectures and teaches widely lisa recently released a book called motherhood facing and finding yourself which is a deep dive into the emotional and symbolic journey of motherhood drawing from her practice as a young yin analyst and her personal experiences i loved getting to chat to lisa i'm a huge fan of her the podcast this young life and what was your what did you think about the combo Ian?
1: it was so fascinating i felt like i had no idea what to expect going in because I wasn't familiar with Lisa and I'm not super familiar with sort of the Jungian philosophy and how that works. But what ended up happening was this really great conversation. And I think connecting the dots to creative leadership and management and sort of working in, in this space that we work in, you know, the thrust of what she was talking about was like in order to be of service to others and be sort of your best self, you really need to know who you are and you need that level of self-reflection and self-awareness and doing that is really challenging and it's like a skill that you have to work on and there are approaches and methods to doing it. Um, and I, it was really great. I came out of it feeling um, really energized. Uh, I really like that conversation.
0: I think Jungian psychology is very interesting. I think anyone who is creative or a creative craftsperson where're kind of balancing your internal and personal creativity with other tensions in the workplace, deadlines, parameters, briefs, et etc. I think there's a lot to explore and and gain from engaging with some of those ideas. Was there anything in particular like for your work that you took away from from what she was talking about?
1: I think just the idea of sort of pausing and thinking about how am I bringing myself fully into this conversation, this interaction, this meeting, this project, um, rather than just sort of ticking the boxes, right. Rather than just sort of going through, you know, a rote workflow or a process and I'm really process oriented. So I like that kind of thing, but bringing my full self to the table is really important from the creative aspect. So I think that was the thing for me. It was slowing down and just, adding that level of thoughtfulness into the process.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes sense to me. I think that resonates with me too. So with that, we'll throw it over to our interview with Lisa. We hope you enjoy. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on Content People. I
2: Thanks want- for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. I'm a huge fan of your book and podcast, and I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you and ask you some questions. Um, So to intro you to our listeners who might not be familiar with you, Lisa Marciano is a licensed clinical social worker and a Jungian analyst, author, and podcaster. Her writings have appeared in numerous publications. She's the co-host and creator of the popular depth psychology podcast, This Jungian Life. She's a faculty. She's on the faculty of the C.G. Young Institute of Philadelphia, and she lectures and teaches widely. Lisa lives and practices in Philly, and she's also the author of Motherhood, Finding and Facing Yourself, which came out in May of 2021. It's available wherever books are sold, and I read it and I absolutely loved it. So a big portion of our questions are going to be diving into that later, but- Lisa, anything there I forgot or missed?
2: Nope, that's a great summary. Oh,
0: all right. Well, first, I'd love to talk about your podcast, This Young Ian Life, for a bit, and then maybe get into the book. For anyone who's not familiar with This Young Ian Life, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about the podcast, the origin, and why you guys decided to do it, and also why you think it's been so resonant and successful mm, with mm-hmm, listeners. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I guess I'll, I'll start by just saying that um, myself and my other two co-hosts, are, we're all Jungian analysts, and we actually went through Jungian training together, and we became very good friends. Jungian training uh, takes a long time and is uh, fairly demanding, and so we were sort of soldiers in arms throughout that process, and, and uh, all graduated about a decade or so ago, and then... You know, we—I think we sort of missed having this. You know, we 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 stayed friends, but we no longer kind of had that glue of being involved in a common endeavor. And so, uh, you know, I, I had been interviewed on a podcast and found myself curious about the process and it, sort of wondering what that would be like. And I, I thought, well, it's nothing I would want to do alone. Um, so then I I I was at a meeting uh, with Deb and Joseph, and I said to them. Would you guys want to do a podcast with me? And Joseph said, Yes. And Deb said, Yes. What's a podcast? <laughs> so they were game, which was just so great. It's one of the things I love about them. I was like, let's go play. Let's, you know. So it really just started as uh, just something, honestly, kind of for fun. We, we did have a process about how we envisioned it and sort of why we saw ourselves doing it, what our personal goals were in doing it definitely part of our goal for each of us was to have this way to be connected to have this kind of chance to play together as it were and we initially said that we would do it for a year and uh just kind of see how it went we didn't really have uh, um you know high ambitions for it i would say but it did really take off almost right away which was just incredibly exciting and and uh, and you asked me kind of why it's resonant and uh, you know maybe i'll maybe i'll first just say a little bit about sort of you know, the concept of the podcast. And to do that, I feel like I need to sort of explain a little bit about Jungian psychology. Is is it okay if I do that? I would love that. Thank
0: you. Okay. Yeah. I,
2: I don't I don't want this to be sort of like a wall of words. But you know, Jung, Carl Jung was a contemporary of uh, Freud and at, at first he was sort of Freud's heir. He was part of the early uh, you know, psychoanalytic movement starting in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, he eventually kind of parted ways with Freud and went on to develop his own school. He was a Swiss and many of his ideas have found their way into the popular culture. So words like introversion or archetype or shadow or... Um, collective unconscious, or, or, or Jung's ideas that we may now be familiar with and at least have some idea of what those things are. So he developed this uh, approach to the human psyche that is uh, maybe a little bit more mystical, I might say, or, or at least spiritual, Uh, He felt that wholeness was, uh, you know, a central goal of human life and that we're all kind of working toward that in some way. And of course, he felt uh, that the contributions of the unconscious and the ability for consciousness and unconscious to kind of work together or inform each other was very important. And to that end, he was uh, very interested in dreams. And he developed a way of working with dreams that was very different from the way Freud worked with dreams. And I would say most people that do dream work now do it more or less in the Jungian vein. So uh, he's been tremendously influential, doesn't always get as much credit as I feel like he deserves. But I I, th- I feel that the podcast really resonated because people are hungry for depth. And Jung really offers this depth perspective. So, what the podcast is really just the three of us kind of having a conversation. We pick a topic. Um, we just did the topic of uh, let's see a recent a recent topic. We just talked about um, oh uh, vocation. That was one of our recent episodes.
0: Ooh, I haven't listened to that one, but I love Jungian in ideas intersecting with work. Maybe we'll get into that later. But that sounds fantastic. Um, Is there an episode you'd recommend someone start with if they're curious, but they haven't uh, listened to anything so far?
2: Well, you know, you could sort of dive in and see whichever one appeals to you. Um, There's an episode, I really, I really would say in very much in keeping with Jung is just go look at our episode catalog and pick one that speaks to you.
0: It will be your... Uh, it'll be your fate, when <laughs> one that, that you, <laughs> well,
2: know. The, the, you know let let the unconscious speak and say that one looks interesting
0: I, I for anyone listening, I would say who's not super familiar with young and I can't claim to be like anything close to super familiar, but I do really love engaging with a lot of the ideas, and I think it's one of the reasons I was so particularly enamored with your book though not the, the only reason I feel like. For creatives, the collective unconscious and our intuition and a lot of the ideas that he um, gives a lot of space to are really, they're meaningful and impactful to me and wholly worth digging into if you work in a creative field. So if you're listening, you're a writer, designer, artist, or professional creative of some kind, I think it could be a, a really, and you're not familiar with it, I certainly recommend it. Um, and. I think that, um, when it comes, when I have a question, which is that Mm -hmm. in my mind, for some reason, when I think of Freud and Jung, I think of Jung as the, for some reason, slightly more accessible from a feminine perspective. And I think I could be totally wrong on that. What does that, why do you think, is that a reasonable, uh, Uh, impression to have? Or is that just my own weird bias?
2: Well, I would say that that is an extraordinarily complicated question. But as a kind of first pass, I would say, I think you're right about that. I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of Freud's writings that are sort of objectively on the face of it, pretty sexist, you know, just including his notion about sort of penis envy, you know, as if as if that's the greatest thing in the world to have and who wouldn't want that? Well, what about womb envy for, for heaven's sake? I mean, how cool is it? You know, we can like make other people. Um, but no, he talked about penis envy. So I think that that there's something that can be very off-putting about Freud's thinking in those terms. Whereas Jung really valued what he referred to as the feminine now, when Jung talked about the feminine, he wasn't talking about women per se. He was talking about a psychological principle, and I, I think this gets very uh, difficult and tangled right away because, okay, what what is what is the the feminine psychological principle? And you start saying things like, "Well, it's the sort of receptivity, it's relatedness," and they're like, "Wait a minute, aren't we crossing over into the land of sexual stereotypes?" and suddenly we're, we're all in a bit of a mess, but, but I, but I think there is something to what you're saying that there, there's uh there is um, Jung, Jung uh, valued women. He valued the feminine perspective. Many, many of his close colleagues were women. And, and so it, it there is a sort of ease there.
0: Got it. Uh Well, I guess speaking of womb envy, I'd love to um, talk to you a little about about your book and some of the ideas and themes in it. And uh, I don't want to be presumptive. I could take a crack at summarizing the book, but I think you'd probably do a better job, obviously. So how how would you summarize the book for folks who might not be familiar with motherhood facing and finding yourself?
2: Well, I guess I'll just say that I was really interested as a mother, I was really interested in how uh, the role of motherhood was affecting me and my psychological growth. And I I found that it was having an extraordinary impact on me, it was changing me. I was uh, growing in ways I couldn't have imagined it before. And I thought that that was really interesting, and I wanted to explore that. So it isn't a book about how to mother. I mean, that's a good thing to write and read about, but this is not one of those books. It's more about how does engaging in this really important, demanding human activity help us to grow and, and in fact, express ourselves more fully?
0: I... I really loved that perspective of the book. So, I don't have children. um, And I think that sometimes I have, you know, it's something that I think about and I feel I'm 35. So, it's a a decision on my mind in some ways. And I feel like I've had a lot of hesitation around motherhood over my life. I I think I have a kind of negative or maybe shallow or decontextualized perspective on it in some ways. And often, I think, it from the outside, I think how hard it looks and how limiting it could feel. Or set, I might, it gives me kind of, at times it's given me a sense of like panic or being trapped. And I feel like your book is so unique in that it doesn't shy away from pain, grief, or complexities of motherhood. But as you're saying, it presents it as maybe not the ultimate, but an ultimate path toward growing one's own psyche. And it feels really unique and singular in the perspective of just don't feel like there's a lot of content out there that's like, yeah, it's really, really hard, but there's an incredible amount of riches there to be mm. had. It seems mm. like there's maybe, maybe I'm not familiar with it, but it seems to me there's kind of a, a lack of content uh, in that space. Would you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that it, in some ways I was like, man, it's so raw what you say. I wonder if some people are hesitant to speak to, to the, the challenges of it.
1: hmm
2: yeah, I mean, I uh, let, let's see. I I do think that I couldn't find any anything out there like this book. I mean, when I first got interested in exploring it, I was right in the weeds with a newborn and a toddler, and I would have, you know, it's that kind of classic thing. I sort of wrote the book I needed. Yeah, you know, I, I would have loved to have read my book back then. <laughs> um and i but i couldn't i couldn't really find anything just like it i mean there've been some wonderful books that are sort of adjacent to it that i learned a lot from but there wasn't anything just like it so yeah i mean i think um uh i think i think that it is not uh it's not a perspective that's spoken about a lot that we have a tendency in our culture uh to want to I don't know, sort of focus focus on on the good things to kind of um rest into this belief that we can sort of have what we want without giving something else up. But of course that's never true. Whenever you get something, you give something else up. And and so holding both of those things is it's difficult for us. Holding holding the both hand. You know, you you said that you were you, you sometimes feel like motherhood might trap you. And and I would say, oh, yes, it absolutely will. And so will anything that's worth doing. Yeah. And that something's going to trap us. And in a way, we should be grateful for it, because whatever kind of traps us or pins us down, or in some sense limits us, also allows us to come into being fully in space and time and live out our unique destiny. And that, that may be motherhood, and it might be something else.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure I'll, I'll get the words wrong. But I feel like maybe early on in the book, you spoke to that a little bit, the idea of commitment being inherently limiting, because you are giving up infinite possibilities for this one possibility that you chose. But The idea that only by committing to something can you live an imperfect but embodied life, kind of, which I found to be so, I was like, it was a great, I I loved it. It really spoke to me. Um, And you also, I think in a similar, maybe in the same chapter, talked a bit about learning to honor our ambivalence about our commitments, Mm -hmm. which I found so interesting. I was like, could you speak to that a little bit? Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I think you did a great job of summarizing that. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think as a, as therapists, I think hopefully most therapists know this. But, you know, the truth is we're 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 all ambivalent about almost everything, almost all of the time. You know, from little decisions like, do I want you know Indian or Chinese tonight? to, you know, do I want, do I want kids? Do I want to go to graduate school? Do I want to stay married? You know, we, 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 we get, we have mixed feelings about just about everything. And I, and I think that that can be very hard to bear. It feels like tension. We hold it with some degree of tension. And so we, we tend to want to, um, push aside any doubts or mixed feelings because it's not comfortable. I mean, if, if I'm just taking this, a biggie, like, Hey, do it, you know, I've been married for a couple decades. Do I want to stay married? You know, I'm not, I'm not always happy. It's like, wow, that is a big thing to be walking around with. So sometimes we just want to sort of push it away. Uh, But, but it's, 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 you know, it's sort of important to give ourselves permission to have mixed feelings about things and to recognize that just because we have mixed feelings about things, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean, for example, that our marriage is terrible, and we should end it. It's like, well, okay, I guess I'm just I'm having a bad week. And I, you know, there, there are some things that uh, maybe I need to work on, or maybe even I just need to come to terms with that I'm not going to be happy with in this marriage, and that's just kind of the way it is. It sort of invites this acceptance, yeah, rather than having to live in this uh, kind of like a neurotic state of splitting off a whole part of what we know and feel, so that we have this experience of kind of a a, a sort of false experience of 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 sort of unanimous uh, uh, accord with whatever's going on in our lives instead of sort of accepting that, that there's an inner committee <laughs> and there's going to be some dissent.
0: I love that visual. Yeah. And I, I think when I think of it from the perspective of um, maybe like mm, people I talk to or manage who are maybe in their mid twenties, late twenties, I think there's a, this perception that when it comes to work, for example, that everyone who's successful was totally clear and committed on what they are doing the whole time. And being ambivalent means you're, um, you're failing, you're um, somehow not measuring up by not feeling super clear on what you want or how to get it or what to do. And I feel like when, you, when I was reading that bit in the book and as you're talking, I feel kind of like a freedom of being like, yeah, it's okay to be ambivalent.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And I suppose, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah. In fact, Jung says somewhere, fanaticism is always a sign of a repressed doubt. Ooh. So I, I in, in my life, I find that it's a good policy to mistrust certainty. Okay. To mistrust it in ourselves and to mistrust it in other people. And uh, when I'm working with someone, for example, who's trying to make a big decision, like for example, you know, a lot of people come into therapy with re- relationship problems and, you know, do I want to leave my relationship? And what I'll often say to people is um, my wish for you is not that you become certain about what you want to do, not that you find certainty, but that you find clarity because you're probably never going to be hundred percent certain about anything. And if you are, it's probably a sign that you're repressing something, but you might get clear. And that, that is a lovely feeling to get clear. And, and it's different than being certain.
0: Does being clear mean understanding how you feel as opposed to feeling a certain way? Or I mean,
2: I think, I think um, as I'm using, I think clarity, there's room for ambivalence and, and also recognizing that um, doubts, let's call them, can play this really important role. And it's important that we have a sort of right relationship with doubt. So we don't want doubt to paralyze us and not be able to move forward. And we also don't want to ignore doubts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so somewhere in between, there's this thing about like, well, a doubt comes up. Like, let's say I'm going to order Indian food. I'm going to be silly here for a minute for dinner. And let's say I have a doubt about that. And then so I want to stop and I want to think, well, why am I feeling a doubt about that? What, let, let me sit with that doubt and let it talk to me. And maybe, maybe the doubt is like, gee, I really have eaten out too many times this week and I'm going over budget and I really should just, you know, make pasta tonight. And maybe that's a doubt I want to listen to, but maybe it's, maybe it's a different kind of doubt. And if I sit with it, I think, no, that's, that's a doubt. You know, maybe that's a doubt because maybe I'd rather have Chinese. It's like, okay, but I can have Chinese another night and tonight I'm going to have Indian. Even though there's a part of me that still feels ambivalent, I can move forward and and order my, my Indian takeout. Uh, I mean, hopefully in spite of my insipid uh, example, you you can sort of see how that, that works, that it's, 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 it's sort of um, being in a dynamic relationship with doubts or ambivalences uh, and, and recognizing that sometimes there's something really valuable there. Well, there's, there's always something valuable there, but then it's like, the the conscious part of the personality sort of has to make a decision about what to do. So getting back to the idea of clarity, I think it's allowing for the doubts, figuring out maybe where they're coming from and what part of them, if anything, needs to be listened to or acted upon, and then feeling freed up by that to move forward in spite of the doubts perhaps continuing to be there.
0: Yeah. So... I think, okay, well, so how do you think doubt and ambivalence play into motherhood? I know it's a very broad question, but I feel like it's a present element throughout the book. That-
2: well, I, I think that, um, you know, in a way it seems silly to have to say this, but perhaps it's important, is that uh, when you're a mother, you will not love every minute of it. You will um, you will really hate it at least sometimes, yeah. at least some moments, and that's okay. It doesn't mean you don't love your kids, it doesn't mean you're a terrible mother uh, that that there will be real losses, and you will feel deep regret about those losses and And that's okay too, that there's there's sort of room for all of this.
0: yeah um, Well, I mean, throughout the book. The writing, it feels so accessible and it reads so effortlessly. I felt like I I couldn't put it down. I was so compelled to read it really quickly. And, but I do feel like, you know, you're dealing with complex subject matter um, and complex concepts. And I know from at our work at brafton that their editorial team that sometimes the things that are the easiest to digest are the hardest to write and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your writing and editing process was like when you were writing the
2: book mm-hmm. well i'm so glad to hear you say all of that first of all because that was explicitly my goal i i love young's ideas they can be very they are very deep they can be very hard to understand uh, they can be very difficult to communicate. And and I it feels important to me to make them more widely available to people. And so how to do that without sacrificing the depth or kind of dumbing them down, that's really the challenge. And I've always admired writers who could do that. And there've been many that have come before me, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. So I'm really glad to hear you say it was accessible. And and at the same time, it, it felt like the complexity of the ideas was coming through. And I guess, um, you know, for me, I think that, you know, in, in terms of that aspect of the writing process, it's really important to me when I'm dealing with these ideas that are, that are, that always relate to something that's somewhat ineffable, you know, that these, these sort of inner psychic truths are, are not concrete things that you can pin down easily. So when I'm writing or speaking about them, really what I'm trying to do is um, express them in a way that um, that, that has a, that has a little kind of ring of solidity to it. It's like I want to be able to kind of tap it yeah. and and feel that it, uh, it feels really solid. So I'm, I'm sort of reaching up into the ether and pulling down this very delicate, uh, difficult to, uh, pin down truth, I want to say. And then I'm looking for words that will make it just very clear, uh, and, 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 like an idea you could work with like you could give an example you could see it in your own life you could find another way to say it and and so i think that that is sort of in essence the the the, the, the thing i'm always doing when i'm doing this kind of writing yeah. is looking for those words and and you know it helps using examples and it and it it helps you know, using the fairy tales, because it you know, essentially what I'm trying to do is move between a couple of different realms. I'm trying to move between the the inner uh, sort of symbolic truth realm, yeah, which is sort of the realm of of poetry and metaphorical language and and can be beautiful can but can also be difficult to kind of transport into a different realm. And then I'm trying to make it very applicable and uh, bring it over into the okay. So I'm here. I am living my life. I'm a mom with three kids. I'm busy. <laughs> I'm not a Jungian analyst. What the heck are you talking about, realm? Okay, so here's how it looks like. You know, in 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 the world.
0: It's I, it's interesting that you talk about how you're like striving for it to be kind of like tangible because I feel like I could feel uh, that makes sense to me because. At no point did I feel like, oh, I'm reading something that there is no moments of like, oh, this feels woo-woo or yeah. fluffy or not actionable. It, it's very um, concrete despite how ethereal, I suppose, some of the ideas are. Mm-hmm. And I guess I should mention for folks listening who haven't read it that there are – a structure of the book is that there's a number of classic fairy tales throughout that kind of speak to, uh, the theme of the chapter and are, um, well, you could probably describe it better than me. I I guess they're, um, speaking to certain truths about motherhood or feminine experience that it's helpful to to know and engage with. Um, you might articulate it differently.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, every chapter has at least one fairy tale and it's a fairy tale that lifts up the, the, uh, the theme of the chapter essentially. And so I, you know, I, I use all of these, these fairy tales that, that usually involve, a, you know, a mother and her child and, and, uh, kind of bring forward the universality of this experience.
0: I l- I'm curious. So of all the fairy tales in the book, do you have a favorite or is there one that speaks the most to you personally?
2: Uh, there, I mean, there's so many, there's so many. Um, great.
0: I mean, they're wonderful.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I've always loved, um, uh, well, I, I would say that one of my favorites in, 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 the book is, is actually Rumpelstiltskin. I just Ooh. think that that is a beautiful, beautiful fairy tale. And it's so rich. And you know, you love it when you're a kid, but studying it now, I I feel like I see something different every time I look at that fairy tale. And it's, it's fun. And it's just got gorgeous imagery in it. And it's just, I mean, it's a fantastic fairy tale.
0: Yeah, uh, that one's great. I, I, I love the Handless Maiden. I found that one to be it just, I feel like I got a lot out of it. It, it spoke to me. Um, and I just, I love them. I've always loved fairy tales too. And I feel mm-hmm. like um, a couple questions about them. So like early in the book, you suggest that all the stories are interpreted as if they come from one psyche, kind of like a dream. So all of the characters, desires, etc., in the tale are an aspect of, would it be the heroine of the story's mind? Mm -hmm. And so I was noticing that so often in these stories, this was not Rumpelstiltskin, but often the female figures are like the tricksters or the villains of the tale. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to compare it mentally to other fairy tales, which I don't have that great of a mental library Mm of, Mm -hmm. and wondering, do you think that in female-focused fairy tales, there are more often female antagonists because women have more critical inner voices or self-antagonism than men or is it not true is it generally like across the board would you say like no that's just because these were female focused that there were so many female villains or tricksters
2: you know what my my hunch about that and I I, I would you know probably want to sit with this and sift through a bunch of fairy tales before I would say something really more definitive but my initial hunch is that i mean very roughly speaking Uh, like a witch in a fairy tale is likely to be an expression in part, this is kind of according to classical Jungian fairy tale interpretation of what we would call a negative mother complex. Mm -hmm. And a, a kind of evil sorcerer in a fairy tale would be an image of a negative father complex. And I think that, you know, daughters have negative mothers and daughters have negative fathers. And sons have negative mothers, and sons have negative fathers, so I think that it's it's probably pretty well mixed between the two um, and uh yeah and and that that you could sort of look at it like that, like, okay, well, this is sort of a negative mother fairy tale and this is a you know if you look, if you look at one of the other fairy tales in the, in the book, um, Vasilisa the Beautiful and, and Baba Yaga, you know there's there's a, there's a there's a there's a there's a wicked stepmother, and there's also this terrible witch Baba Yaga. And oftentimes they go together in fairy tales. By the way, there's often a witch and a stepmother, and they're, they're sort of like in Hansel and Gretel, and they're they're often sort of an exa- sort of a. Uh, sort of two different versions of the same thing, right? You've got you've got the negative witchy stepmother, and then you have the actual witch. And oftentimes, as in Hansel and Gretel, when the witch is dead, ah, look at that—the stepmother is dead at the same time. You know, it's kind, sort of proves that they're really just kind of two aspects of the same energy. Okay. Yeah. And uh, in in some in some sense, in a little bit more of a, um, uh, it's a little bit more complex in in Vasilisa, But it's kind of the same thing. There's the negative stepmother, and then there's the the witch and when she when she she doesn't vanquish the witch by killing her but she enlists the witchy energy kind of on her side and then she's able to go back and defeat the stepmother which is a really interesting interesting thing but um you know and the father's sort of absent you know as in as in a lot of fairy tales he's like a nice guy but he sort of leaves her he's off somewhere and he's kind of leaving her to uh you know, the clutches of the evil stepmother. So, so I think, I think a lot of times that's maybe a way to start thinking about that.
0: It's really fascinating. And so maybe it would, could I ask you to talk about Rumpelstiltskin a little bit mm-hmm. and kind of explain like what, uh, what it means and Uh, why you like it so much.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I, I chose, I want to say, first of all, that there's, there's so many different ways to understand fairy tales that I don't, I'm not claiming that this is the way to understand Rumpelstiltskin, but I chose Rumpelstiltskin for the chapter on creativity, which to me, that's a really fascinating topic about motherhood and creativity, because typically, as I go into in, in some detail in the book, you know, motherhood and creativity don't always play well together. I mean, it can be very difficult to have a creative life when you're a mother because, you know, any any free time that you might have, you know, is kind of taken up with your kids. But but there's an interesting way that I suggest that um, that being a mother can also kind of support create creativity in a way, and, that, and that's what I was. That's why I was interested in Rumpelstiltskin. And the way I see it is that it is a fairy tale about a father wound. uh, Because if you all remember, there's a miller who has a a daughter, a beautiful daughter. But she's lazy and she's not very good at very many things. But he goes out and he runs into the king and he boasts, you know, I have a daughter who can spin straw into gold. So he does what a lot of narcissistic parents do. Which is sort of trade upon their child's talents to make themselves look good. So uh, we we talk the psycho babble for this is that the child becomes a narcissistic extension of the parent. So, for example, if if uh, if there's a narcissistic parent and their child is uh, very good at the piano, then the parent becomes sort of overly invested in the child's. Uh, musical abilities and is kind of driving the child and taking the child to piano competitions and and that sort of thing. And, and the parent is overly wrapped up in the child's success or failure because of how it reflects on the parent. So um, this would be a case, the poor Miller's daughter, um, you know, who who I think did have quite extraordinary abilities, but the father is really kind of selling them. He's kind of trading on them by boasting about them too. The king, and of course that gets that gets the miller's daughter in this terrible position where she's stuck in this dungeon with a whole bunch of straw and said, spin it into gold. And and I just I love this image of spinning straw into gold, because straw is pretty much useless. It's really just the byproduct and it's not good for very much at all. Um, but to think that you could take sort of nothing and turn it into gold, that is a lot what creativity is like. I mean, when you when you write a piece of music or you make a painting or you write a story. And in, in the in the book, the the biographical example I use is JK Rowling, who, you know, just out of thin air creates Harry Potter. You know, that's really spinning straw into gold. Yeah. Um, but she's not able to do it in a way that feels kind of autonomous and that it's under her control. Uh, It can only happen um, when she kind of pays off this little demonic character who we later learn is named Rumpelstiltskin. And the truth is that when we have a father wound, when we have a narcissistic parent, it often does feel like our creativity doesn't belong to us. It has to be in service to um, a kind of to our parents' desires or 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 we can even sort of internalize that. And then it kind of feels like our creative output is in service to an almost kind of demonic inner driver that's pushing us and kind of make you know it's people who maybe are single-mindedly focused on a creative path but seem really unhappy while they're doing it. It feels it feels compulsive mm-hmm. and and uh it makes people kind of miserable. So um m- just to kind of quickly wrap up she she can't kind of get a handle on her own creative abilities until her child is at stake so that's a different kind of creative output right it's an it's not a creative child it's a biological child and and it's important enough to her that she needs to kind of take back what she was split off from through this Father wound, and that's when she's able to discover Rumpelstiltskin's name. And in a sense, in the end of the story, he disappears. We could also look at that as her being able to integrate this creative capacity.
0: I I love that story so much. There's so much there, and yeah, I agree with you. The imagery I picture the the straw is gold. It's turning into gold. She's got beautiful blonde hair. I think is that right? Um, there's, it's, um, but as you're talking about it too, I'm wondering, or what it's making me think too, is I know plenty of creative people, creative professionals who, when they are at work and in service of a brief, a product, a deadline, they have to turn a bunch of straw into gold pretty fast. Mm -hmm. They can absolutely do it beautifully when it comes to their own how they spend their Saturday afternoon, they would love to do that, but they feel uh, blocked it, because it's in service of themselves or their own creativity, I think, which it feels like you need a different type of permission for. Um, does What are...
2: What I think, think that's that? spot on. I think that's spot on, you know, that, that somehow this is something that you can sort of do for another master, mm-hmm. you know, that, just like the, the prince, the prince, the, oh, sorry, the Miller's daughter does it because she's, you know, kind of forced to, um, but, but can't access that within herself and, until uh, she's, she sort of has to learn how to do that to save her child. And, and then and then she's able to integrate that so and, and you know and that in a sense was what happened with JK Rowling because you know as we sort of famously know she um she was on public assistance yeah. and uh, she says you know I just knew I had to finish that book and her baby daughter was in the stroller and she would walk around and when her daughter fell asleep she'd get out her notebook and start you know writing um so there's a way that that you know, that we can, we can get in touch with our own creative potential. We can reclaim that for ourselves. You don't have to be a mother in order to have that kind of integration. I just use that as an example in the book because the book was about motherhood. But I think what you're talking about is the challenge that we can feel if we're creative professionals to reclaim that for ourselves. And that is what the Miller's Daughter does at the, at the end of the book, at the end of the story, is that she reclaims it so that it is hers and she can use it then however she wants she can use it in service to you know her boss let's say if you're a creative professional or on a saturday afternoon for your own creative projects as well and
0: like how does one do that
2: well um yeah so this is kind of like as to your question before about like how do we bring it out of the Kind of theoretical, yeah. um, hypothetical, symbolic realm, and into our own lives. What does that look like in our own lives? And uh, you know, I think I think the fairy tale is instructive in that sense because um, naming something. Uh rec- it means that we have this sort of intimate familiarity with something. There's a power in naming. There's a power in knowing the name of something. And, and there's an intimacy in knowing the name of something. So the nature of the task to learn Rumpelstiltskin's name tells us a lot about what we have to do. And I think if we want to think about that, what that might look like psychologically, it's actually recognizing what that thing is, so, if you're a creative professional, let's say who has no trouble turning straw into gold at work five days a week, but has trouble finding that for your yourself, um, it, it, turning naming Stillskin might be like recognizing your own creative genius. And I'm I'm using that in a very specific sense, not the not the common sense that we usually use it in our culture, but in the sense that the Romans meant it, like you know, the Romans said, we each have a creative genius. It's, it's this spark of something. We all have one. And we have to have a relationship with it. In a way, the, the Rumpelstiltskin figure is, is kind of a daimon, which is the Greek name for genius, or the Roman name for genius. And, and to have a relationship with that, to recognize it, to know that it is ours. To see that it's not us, it isn't the same thing as us, but it, does, but it is ours and we have a special unique relationship with it that we can claim. So what that might look like in the life of a hypothetical person, let's say, let's say there's a, a young woman who's a creative professional who maybe doesn't fully understand or, or feel that she can fully claim her own genius. Yeah. But but being able to understand the power of that, recognizing it, coming into relationship with it, owning it—not not in the sense of identifying with it, but in the sense of having this relationship with it and recognizing that it's hers—might um, put her in a situation where then she could call upon that genius even on Saturday afternoons. Mm-hmm. I'm
0: kind of just accepting that that rumple still skin. Diamond Genius is an aspect of herself that's at her beck and call, as opposed to something that she has to hunt down and negotiate with. Or
2: and I, w- I would say not necessarily at your beck and call, okay. because it's, right. it's a little bit more. It's not like the ego's in charge. It's more. It's more like it's ideally um, like a team. <laughs> okay, but you can't totally control that thing. And you shouldn't try.
0: <laughs> so you're in collaboration with and not managing. Okay, um,
2: that's that's a perfect way to say it.
0: I lo- I'm gonna go back and reread that story. I love that. I'm so thank you for sharing it. Um, and so, well, one of my questions, which I feel like we're kind of touching on, was, you know, I feel like um, engaging with fairy tales and archetypes, I find to be very creatively inspiring, and. I was I think lots of folks do and I was wondering if you if you agree and if so if you could kind of maybe touch upon why like why are these archetypes so powerful and why are these stories so compelling to us I feel like just reading it that as you're talking on the imagery like you read a novel maybe you've got imagery going maybe you don't but I feel like you can't read a fairy tale and not see it happening in your mind
2: Mm mm-hmm uh, well, let's see. That's um, a great question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's sort of like, well, so what about the nature of the archetypes and, and the collective unconscious and the unconscious? And, and again, if I'm going to try to sort of put it in very user-friendly language, what I think I want to say is that um, these archetypal images and these archetypal stories, first of all, are universal and also, they tap into um, they tap into sort of the wisdom of the left brain, if I can use that language a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's non-linear. It's non-rational. It's um, it goes to the the nature of metaphor and symbol, which kind of goes deeply into embodied existence it uh touches into kind of instinctual knowing and um kind of implicit knowledge rather than explicit knowledge and there is a lot of stuff happening at that level uh and and in some sense that's the 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 spring that kind of feeds the rest of us
0: mm.
2: and so being able to have this conduit into it is uh, really renewing.
0: So these like archetypes and ideas are so tapped into our unconscious mind that it's almost like a bit more of a a direct I don't know mm-hmm. uh, way in than different types of writing content stories where it's a little more linear right makes total sense i do feel like it's an experience to read them i'm like Mm -hmm. not to be dramatic sometimes i'm like oh i'm like feeling this in my body as i Mm -hmm. read it Um, and i think i I I do find them very creatively inspiring did you when you were how did you choose which stories you were going to talk about
2: i'm i'm thinking about that because um You know, I I don't know that there was sort of one way. There were certainly times when I had a theme I wanted to talk about, and then I went looking for a particular story. And there were other times when I had a story and I knew it suggested a certain theme. So sometimes it was the tale that came first, and then I kind of built the chapter around the tale. And at other times it was like, oh yeah, there's there's this thing I, I need to talk about, and then I need to go off and find a fairy tale about it.
0: Got it. Um, well, this is a little bit of a segue. And I'm, one thing I wanted to ask you about is I'm really interested in imposter syndrome. Um, I think that it comes up so much. I I don't feel it myself now, but so often folks who I'm working with or managing have it. And I just want to shake them and be like, you're amazing. Like, stop this. But I feel like My layman's hypothesis, which I'm happy to be corrected on, is that I feel like it seems very closely tied to shame or feelings of inadequacy that are coming from the inside. And there was a passage in your book, though, that gave me a slightly different perspective on it. And I realize I'm doing something here, which maybe I should not do, which is taking this book about motherhood and thinking about the principles and applying them to work. Um, Why wouldn't
2: you do that? (laughs) That sounds great.
0: All right, all right. Sometimes I think, oh, it's a typical thing for me to do, first of all. And second (sighs) of all, like maybe uh, applying deep human truths to like the workplace. But um, in, I think it was chapter three or four, you were talking about instances in which mothers, new mothers are really struggling to soothe their babies and they felt a deep sense of inadequacy or shame. And then they maybe would start to feel actually like avoidant of their babies and or those caretaking emotions. And I might be getting Mm -hmm. that wrong, but it was Mm -hmm. making me think how important feeling competent and Mm -hmm. validated and receiving. Yes, good job. Yes, this is well done or or feelings of knowing that that you've done well is toward like anything where you're going to have a repeated interaction. Yeah. then I was like, well, maybe it's not about shame or maybe it's partly about shame, but maybe imposter syndrome too is just about working in a vacuum where you're doing something but receiving no human input back at times and feeling like, uh, am I doing this right? Am I messing this up? I'm not feeling validated. I feel avoidant over time. That's a whole tangle of things. But I'm really curious yeah. for your take on imposter syndrome and how it might relate to some of these stories and themes.
2: Well, I think that's a really interesting question. I want to say, first of all, that I think it's absolutely valid what you're doing to, I mean, and I hope people would do that, right? Because I mean, there's a way that the book deals with just like you said, sort of human truths, and I'm applying them to mother, but that's not the only place they could be applied. So I, I think that's interesting to think about that kind of feedback loop that can happen with um, mothers who who don't who don't have that experience of say being able to calm the baby and then it it brings about this sense of disconnection and, and that can sort of become a negative a negative cycle um, that these neuroscientists call blocked care, you know. And you know, the interesting thing about taking care of a baby versus working in an office is that, um, with the baby you only there's only one source of feedback. and it's like did the baby stop crying and if the if you can't get that feedback it does make you want to just sort of recoil because it it doesn't feel good hopefully if you're working in a job you know maybe maybe you have the satisfaction of finishing and you feel good about it and maybe like one boss likes it or the customer likes it or something so hopefully there's like a bunch of different uh ways of, of getting feedback um I, I think I'm I'm very interested in imposter syndrome as well, and I suspect that it might be something slightly different because what I'm aware of is there's some research about imposter syndrome. It's been a little while since I looked this up, so I can't quote chapter and verse. But my memory is that what they found is that the only people who experience imposter syndrome are extremely competent people.
0: Oh wow!
2: That it's oh well, pretty I take it back. I do have
0: imposter syndrome now. I'm kidding. <laughs>
2: No, and it's not that all it's not that all highly competent people have it, but that pretty much the only people that have it happen to be highly competent. Interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. And 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 the thing is that people can have imposter syndrome even when they're getting lots and lots and lots of positive feedback. So I imagine for some people it's some kind of sort of horrible, you know, shame gnawing at the roots of their being. Um, that they they, you know, I'm thinking about uh, you know, sort of, you know, Judy Garland at the end of her career who just, you know, please, please keep the applause coming. And you know, she just was she kind of couldn't live without the applause. I don't know if that's exactly imposter syndrome, but maybe something like it. But I, I suspect that it might have actually a positive uh um purpose almost, if you will. Because the thing about imposter syndrome is it keeps you checking yourself.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, it's it's sort of like, um, okay, well, I just did this amazing thing. Yeah. But was it really as amazing as what this other person did? You know, it was amazing in this way, but I think I really fell down here. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I think it was good, but maybe it wasn't really as good as it could be. And ideally, there can be a positive effect there that it sort of keeps you from getting overconfident. It keeps you evaluating yourself yeah, and perhaps helping you see how you can do better. So I think the negative part about imposter syndrome is when it stops you. And it might be that as with many things in life, if you can kind of reorient to it, not see it as this horrible thing that's going to stop you in your tracks, but sort of like when it comes up, do this thing like, oh, there's that again oh that's just a thing that's a thing that always happens to me it doesn't mean it's true but you know let's say you've just given an amazing presentation and then what happens is you know eight hours later you think oh god it sucked you know or something like that it's like if you can go okay well that's a thing that happens to me and then and then you could even do something like okay and I have to remember that the only people that have that thought are people who are actually good because you know it's it's sort of Excuse me, but it's kind of the blowhards who think they're so great that don't ever think, "Oh my God, maybe I'm not that great." You know? Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, so the fact that I'm thinking maybe I'm not that great probably means that I did a really good job. But let me see. You know, what what is my what is my honest appraisal of my performance? You know, is it could it could I maybe I could have done better? Maybe there's something I'd like to do better next time. Not in a sort of uh, self-flagellating kind of way. Yeah. But in a like. Oh, maybe I can use this.
0: I love that so much. It's like embracing the shadow critic a little bit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the professional benefit or personal Seeing
2: if you benefit. can make that a member of the team.
0: I love that. So you've got your genius, your critic.
2: <laughs> That's right. Um,
0: and um, and like
2: the critic has a place, yeah. as long as he or she stays in that place.
0: This is my most favorite interpretation and advice on pastor syndrome I've ever heard, <laughs> and I'm going to immediately tomorrow talk to like four people I work with about it. I thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation.
2: And yeah, I really enjoyed it too.
1: All right, everyone, we hope that you enjoyed our chat with Lisa as much as we enjoyed having it. Next week, we'll be coming to you with an interview with Kimberly Brown. Kimberly is a career and leadership expert, and she's defined her mission as helping women and people of color navigate the workplace and become industry leaders in their own right. She is also the author of Next Move, Best Move, a book about transitioning into a career that you will actually love. You can also find her column, Your Next Move, on New York Magazine's The Cut.
0: We'll also make a little plug for Brafton's content here, if you're not among the only almost 100,000 marketers who subscribe to our newsletter. you're missing out on some great content and info, we'll throw the link in the show notes if you want to subscribe.
1: And that's it, folks. Thank you all so much for listening. It really helps out the show. If you rate and review us on iTunes, we really appreciate it. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at contentpeopleatgrafton.com.